Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Last week we finished up our two-week look at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And our section of narrative this morning that follows that up, it serves as a stark contrast between the vineyard, the benevolent vineyard owner acting for the good, gracious action on the behalf of those in, that labored in the vineyard, and Jesus and Jesus' still immature disciples. We're going to read Matthew 20, 20 through 23. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. And Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. We're going to look this morning at a calloused appeal, a composed answer, a request for conferred authority. And then next week we'll look at um, trying to understand their confused assumption about the kingdom and the correction that Jesus applies to that. But we're going to begin this morning with a calloused appeal where the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and bowing down and making a request of him. You might ask, why did I call this a calloused appeal? Well, it isn't just the content of the question. It's the fact that they're making any request of Jesus at all. You have, to, uh, uh, you have to consider what I call the contextual cringe of this passage. Back up just a little. Let's read it with what came right before it in Matthew twenty seventeen, and then include verse 20. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified. And on the third day he'll be raised up. Then... The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. Think about that. Jesus is about to begin the most stressful week of his entire human life. All the tensions, all the rejection, all the conspiring against him that we've read is about to come to a head. We are now not far from the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will pray so fervently that his sweat will become as great drops of blood. He knows what's coming and he tells his disciples what's coming. He'll be rejected by these people that he loves, the ones that he gathered. He he longed to gather together as a hen would her chicks, but they wouldn't come. And he'll be rejected by them, and in their envy and jealousy, they'll lie on him and condemn the one sinless man who ever lived to death. He'll be handed over to Gentiles, mocked by people who he could destroy with a word. And not only will they mock him, but they're going to scourge him. Think think about what you're reading. 
Remember what a scourging is. Uh, a scourge is a whip made with braided leather and thongs with heavy metal balls woven into it with pieces of sharp bone and sometimes glass planted within it that would deeply bruise, burst, and cut the skin. The backs of a scourged person would be so shredded that often parts of the spine were exposed by the deep cuts. The whipping would go all the way from the shoulders, down the back, onto the buttocks, and the back of the legs. Many people died from this kind of beating. And Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer that kind of beating and that then he would suffer the most barbaric, barbaric torturous, cursed death ever invented. He'd become a cursed man through the agonizing death of, a cru- of crucifixion. That's the horrific parts of verses 17 through 19. Now, verse 20, right on the heels of that, then the mother of Zebedee, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons bowing down and making a request of him. There's no indication that any of the disciples made any response to what Jesus had just said. In their defense, Jesus had told them several times by this point. Uh, After the first time, Peter rebuked him sharply, not so, Lord. uh, And that ended poorly, if you remember. They may have just grown numb to hearing it. They may have simply discounted his prediction as merely a figurative or symbolic uh, gesture, basically about that, um, you know, how difficult it was going to be for him to ascend into his kingship. They might not have taken it literally. Whatever the reasons, though, Matthew doesn't record any engagement with them, but they did, however, continue to pursue their own interests. He pours out his heart about what he's about to go through and they want him to do him a favor. (laughs) They want them to do her a favor. We have next these conspiring family members. Who is this? This is the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. Matthew's focus throughout the Gospel of Matthew has been the twelve, but there's a lot of other people traveling with them. It's not just Jesus and the twelve disciples. One of those is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She'll also be named among the women at the cross in chapter 27, 56. So it seems evident that she was with them most of the time. When we begin looking at the different accounts of the women at the cross with Jesus, we learn something that's actually pretty interesting, I think. That these conspiring family members aren't just related to one another. It's not just the mother of the sons of Zebedee and James and John. It, it, it is When you compare the gospel accounts of the women who stood near the cross when Jesus was being crucified, it seems almost certain that she is the, the Salome of Mark 15.40 and 16.1. And from John 19.25, it seems that she was the sister of Mary. Yeah, you know, that Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would make her Jesus' aunt. And James and John, her first cousins. If this narrative ever seemed odd to you, then perhaps this makes it make more sense. This is not just some woman. This is his aunt coming saying, you know, keep this in the family kind of thing. The mother came asking. It might be argued that James and John's mother, or Salome as I believe it was, didn't know about Jesus' coming, suffering, and death. She might not have known. They did, but she might not have. I mean, in 1621, she wouldn't have been there. He was showing his disciples, it makes very clear, the suffering and death and resurrection was coming. Only Peter, James, and John were there the two times that he talked about his coming, suffering, and death in chapter 17. And 
in the verses we just read, he took the disciples aside in 17 through 20 to tell them about these things. But whether or not word had leaked out about his coming suffering and death to where everyone in the circle knew about it or not, we know she believed Jesus was the Messiah. And we know that about this time when Jesus spoke to the crowds in Luke 19.11, it says, while they were listening to these things, because he was near Jerusalem, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They're like, Jesus is just figging to Messiah. He's about to get this job done. He's about to ascend to his throne. That's what they thought were com- was coming. She clearly believed that the kingdom was literally at hand in the way that she had always understood kingdoms to be. So she thought her request had to be made, made right now because time's running out. Before he ascends to the throne, we need to have plans on the pecking order underneath Jesus. If it is as it seems, and she was Jesus' aunt, and James and John were his cousins, she definitely felt a familial obligation to step in and act on behalf of her family, securing them the most advantageous positions. Wasn't that how it worked with all the other kings in positions of power in the world? Isn't it still? You can get away with all kinds of stuff if you're kin to the right people, can't you? Before you judge this woman too harshly, wouldn't you be thinking of the best way to help your sons as well? Think about it. Wouldn't you? One of the main ways in which a woman in a patriarchal society could exercise power was in terms of her continued influence over her adult sons. The mother is asking for her sons, but she's also asking for herself. Because if her sons are well positioned and they're responsible for taking care of her, then she will be well taken care of. So Matthew isn't moving the responsibility from the sons of the mother, but he's reporting the totality of what happened because the mother was involved, but she didn't act alone. Who's with her? It says that the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons with her. So James and John are there. Not on, she didn't come. She came with her sons, not on behalf of her sons. In Mark's gospel, he doesn't even think it worth mentioning the fact that the mother was there. He leaves her out entirely in his retelling of this story. In Mark 10.35, it just says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever that you wish. So it's, it's clear that they are just as involved in this as she is. In Mark, the request is made directly by James and John themselves. And even in Matthew's account, their mother disappears from the dialogue after her initial request. He begins addressing them directly. Did you notice that? So it's clear that the request is made with at least James and John's full endorsement. And it's possible, if not likely, that they put her up to it. Why do I say that? Well, Jesus addresses them, not her. The disciples are angry at them, not her. And there's no record of James and John defending themselves by saying, well, it wasn't us. You can't blame a mama for trying to help her boys out, guys. Don't get mad at us. There's none of that. No, the anger of the disciples is presented by Jesus as both righteous and as rightly directed. They're mad at them and there's a reason to be. In addition to relying on their relationship as Jesus' cousins, the brothers perhaps also thought to play on Jesus' affection for his mother by having her sister approach him for the favor. I mean, are you more, are you more likely to tell your cousins to you know, leave me alone or your aunt? Right? So let's get Aunt Salome in this picture. 
The three obviously came with a common purpose and plan that they'd discuss among themselves beforehand. The mother probably spoke first, and then James and John spoke for themselves. Kind of makes it a bit worse for James and John here, doesn't it? They were pulled aside along with Jesus, told of the horrors that he would endure, and they're manipulatively conspiring a way to get something from Jesus. Now let's go back to the mom again. Let's consider when she came up. Look, it says, look at the calculated approach. Bowing down, she made a request of him. This bowing down, it's proskuneo. Uh, um, it's uh, it's common word for respect or homage or veneration, and sometimes, but not necessarily, even worship. Um, so, at the very least, it was a kind of respect that a person would would give to someone who was a powerful monarch or, or a very important person. And motives are multifaceted. I'm confident that she really does respect Jesus. But by the flow of this text, it seems evident that she was also trying to flatter Jesus by appealing to his sense of royalty and get on his good side and make him want to do something good for her because she's loyal to him. She loves him. You want to, People that are good to you, do you not want to do good back to them? People that look highly, look at you with reverence, do you not, are you not, your heart not turned toward them? So she's wanting to display that before she makes this, what I believe is a manipulative request. We learn more of how she went about making this request from Mark's gospel. And we see how manipulative games are being played. Near Eastern kings prided themselves on having the resources to grant any favor or request. Like, I've got so much resources I can lavish on you and it won't even hurt my standing because I have so much. It was that kind of pride where that led Herod Antipas to swear to the daughter of Herodias when she danced before him that whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Remember that in March 6, 23? Well, Mark echoes that language exactly in his telling of this story in Mark 10, 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He's appealing. You can do any. You've got so much power. You can give us anything that we ask for. That's how highly we esteem you. She goes to him with her son. She bows down and she humbly asks this manipulative question. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We want you to sign a, agree to do whatever we ask. Sign a blank check and then give it to us so we can cash it. Agree to do it and then we'll tell you what it is. Notice, we want you to do whatever we'll ask. Alright, go ahead. No, that's kind of what Herod did. And there, if, if Jesus gives his word, I'll do whatever you ask, then whatever they ask, it's a blank check. We might read this and think, how bad can it really be to make a request? Well, not every request is appropriate. And as we've seen, this one is at least poorly timed and it reeks of manipulation, trying to flatter him into committing to doing something huge for her boys and by extension for her without even telling him what it is. Now, how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with a composed answer. Verse 21, And he said to her, What do you wish? If it had been in Jesus' nature to sin, there are a couple of obvious ways that Jesus could have fallen into sin here. First, he could have taken offense and harbored bitterness against James and John for asking for a favor right after he told them of his coming suffering. Isn't that what many people do? Second, he could have let Salome's flattery lead him to rashly signing the blank check promise and going beyond the Father's will. 
But he's our great high priest who is tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet when he's tempted, he passes the test. He's without sin. So, he's not offended. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You've just told these men who supposedly love you that you're about to experience the most horrible week imaginable. Perhaps, you know, let's put it in in our terms. You told someone, my mom or dad just died. I'm devastated. And they look you straight in the eye and say, could you do me a big favor? Or, I've been diagnosed with a terminal illness and they say, that's terrible. I've been meaning to ask you to do something for me and I guess I better get on it quick because you might not be around. You're talking about something serious and personal. Bearing your soul, hurting, and the person to whom you are talking says something completely self-absorbed. I'm going to give you two words of advice. First one is, don't be that guy. It's pretty simple. Don't be that guy. Think before you speak. We can get so wrapped up in our own stuff that we're not even listening to people. We don't care about what they're going through. So we're half listening and then we say the most obtuse things. Don't be that guy. Don't be so wrapped up in your own little issues that you fail to love your neighbor and then display that lovelessness with calloused replies to a brother who's bearing his soul to you. Unfortunately, even when we try, we sometimes fail, won't we? We are still plagued with remaining sin. And the selfishness that is in, our, in us will manifest itself at times. And when it does, and you notice that you've done it, or if you find out later because a brother or sister loves you enough to bring it to your attention, own it. Just confess it. Confess your failure and apologize. Such humility can repair a damaged relationship. Repent and confess quickly. But not only don't be that guy, but on the other side, don't be offended by that guy. When it happens, let me say it again. Did I say if it happens? I didn't say that. When it happens, because it will, we're going to be on the other side of this equation. Sometimes we aren't the self-absorbed, clueless jerk. Sometimes people will accidentally do something like this to us. Are they inconsiderate? Yes. Are they selfish? Yes. Was it a jerk thing to do? Absolutely. But we've got to ask ourselves, WDJD, what did Jesus do? And you know what Jesus did when they came to him with this self-absorbed request right after he's born in his soul? He asks, what do you want? What, What can I do for you? Think about the grace of that. He doesn't rebuke them or how dare you. That doesn't come out. What is it that you want? Because if I can serve you, I want to. He overlooked the offense. And he even asked them how he might help them. Proverbs 19.11 A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression. You don't have to take offense every time you've got an opportunity to. Just overlook the transgression. That's what a godly person does. They overlook it. As Paul said in Colossians 3, 12-13, As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you also should. We need to remember, we've probably been the jerk sometimes, haven't we, that said the callous thing. 
And the same grace that we want to receive, should we not extend it? Must we not extend it? Of course we should. Of course we must. Uh, he wasn't proud, in a heart, uh, proud of heart in a way that made the Lord uh, Lord offenses over his disciples. But he also wasn't proud in a way that made him become like Herod. He, he didn't feel obligated by the request. This is the other way that Jesus could have sinned. Remember how I pointed out that Near Eastern kings prided themselves for having the resources to grant any favor or any request and how that it was uh, such pride that led to Herod Antipas swearing to give his daughter Herodias whatever she asked and once he committed himself to that, she asked for the head of John the Baptist and he felt obligated to carry out what he had said because of all that pride. See the pride on the other side of that? Mark echoes, you remember that language exactly. But Jesus doesn't respond like a manipulated pansy king who confers on his people whatever they ask just so they'll like him. That's not how he, that's not how he responds. Jesus asks what this something that they want done is before he agrees to do it or not. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to her, what do you want? It's a good question when somebody asks you for a favor. Hey, I want you to do a favor for me. Okay, whatever. No, no, no. What you think... Do you, do you overcommit yourself when people ask you for things? Anybody ever do that besides me? It's this desire to be liked. I, I, you, oh, oh, I need to do this. And if I, do, if, I, if I do anything you need for me, you'll, you'll like me. What you think is selflessness in yourself might actually be a selfish desire to be liked in your pride. You say yes to be showy in your generosity, just like Herod was being by saying that he'd do whatever was asked of him. I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do anything that my friends ask of me. I just, I, I've heard people say, I'd do anything for my friends, or I'd do anything for my kids. Or I, guys, I wouldn't do just anything for my wife. And if you're a Christian, you wouldn't either. That great theologian Meatloaf had it right. You know, Meatloaf, I would do anything for love. But I won't do that. I think what I always wondered what he meant. I think what he's saying is I would do anything that's lawful and within the revealed will of God. I think that's what Meatloaf was getting at. That's where it would stop. That's how far I would go. They may want me to do things that are not good for them or that I have no authority to even attempt or that's outside God's will. Jesus models for us the way that these requests should be handled in James 1.19. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak. Whether it be refusing the impulse to put someone in their place or whether it be to agree to some request without thought, we need to be slow to speak and slow to anger. Now, uh, what do we see them requesting? Well, they want this conferred authority. That's our next point. What are they asking for? What is this calloused appeal? It's for conferred authority. Verse 22, She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. Before I continue pointing out where James, John, and Omam were wrong here, there are some, com some com commendable aspects to this. He says, Command that in your kingdom. <laughs> oh, I love that, don't you? Does he have one yet that you can see? Is he sitting on a throne in Jerusalem? 
Or is he homeless? Walking around in the wilderness. Saying he's going to have a kingdom. Which one? Jesus' victory is anticipated. And his authority is assumed. Guys, that's some faith, isn't it? Let's think about these two for a moment. His victory is anticipated. Jesus had uh, not only told them of his coming suffering... He also told them in Matthew 19, 28, Amen, or truly, or verily, I say unto you that you have followed me. So he's putting this absolute stamp of his own authority. I say it to you, and when I say it, I, since I'm the Messiah, you can take it to the bank. I absolutely say to you that you, have fo- you who have followed me in the resurrection when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve th- tribes of Israel. So they're like, yeah, yeah, you're going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. Yes, you're going to be condemned to death. Yeah, they're going to deliver you to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to mock, scourge, and crucify you. I'm sure the disciples didn't know if that death was literal or figurative of suffering. Could have been either. Like, he could have been using hyperbolic language. I'm not sure how the disciples understood it when he said this. I mean... Okay, so you're going to be king, but you're going to die first. That die must mean something besides really die. I don't think they're really anticipating a bodily resurrection from the dead here. Probably not. But either way, he also said that on the third day he'd be raised up. So although there's going to be hardship and temporary suffering and either literal or metaphorical death, in the end, he's going to be raised up. They understood that the path to the kingdom was through suffering. And they were fine with that. Guys, that is commendable as well, isn't it? So it's going to be hard to get to the kingdom, but it's going to be worth it to get to the kingdom. They too were ready to take up their crosses and follow whatever the cost was because Jesus assured them that some of them would not taste death until the Son of Man came into His kingdom. He said at the end of chapter 16. He assured them that they had... Uh, that they had been um, that they would be repaid many times over for every loss that they suffered or sacrificed that they made in Matthew 19. So in the end, Jesus wins. The end of the story was that the path to the kingdom is through suffering and the reward will be worth the sacrifice. Got it. Now, about that kingdom. Let's talk about that kingdom. Okay, when that kingdom comes, can we sit on the right hand and on the left hand? The commendable part is this steadfast assurance that the kingdom is going to come. You're not wrong. That is faith, isn't it? I wish today's Christians had that kind of faith. Even with the misunderstandings and the overzealousness because today Christians are marked with a pessimism and an expectation of complete defeat. I'd rather have to pull back the reins on an overly aggressive war horse than have to try to spur a skittish one to go forward, wouldn't you? If you're in the heart of battle and you've got an aggressive war horse, you're not near as much danger as you are that one, if you're riding one that refuses to cross over the little river or creek. When that happens, when the kingdom finally arrives, they want to be sure that they have the places of greatest honor. So let's stick a pin in whatever might be wrong with that part and consider another commendable aspect. And it's Jesus' absolute authority is assumed. James, John, and their mother, Salome, anticipate Jesus' ascension to the throne in Jerusalem in the near future. And they want James and John to play a key role in that kingdom. 
by going to Jesus with their request, they're showing that they believe he has the absolute authority to assign these positions. And in some way, they're doing exactly what Jesus told them in chapter 7. Remember in chapter 7, 7 through 8, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Alright, we better take our shot. If we, if we don't ask, ain't no way you're going to say yes. We better, we better go ahead and ask. Sure, they've forgotten that requests have to be in Jesus' name and for the sake of His kingdom, like it says in John 14, 13-14. Sure, they haven't yet learned the lesson of James 4-3 that you ask and receive not because you ask amiss or with wrong motives so that you might spend it on your own pleasures. And they've forgotten that Jesus Himself did not come down from heaven to do His own will, but the will of the Father who sent Him, that He always did the will of the Father. John 6, 38. So he wasn't at liberty to just do whatever without prayerful consideration of what God was doing, of what the Father's will was. But that leads us to the truly contemptible aspect. We've looked at the commendable. That's about as far as I can go on what's commendable in it. But there is a contemptible aspect of this request as well. Get this picture in your head. She humbly kneels before Jesus before she asks this anything but humble question. Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and one on the left. Let's make sure we understand what they were asking and what's wrong with it. What were they requesting? Well, it's pretty simple really. Everywhere you look in ancient times, being at the right hand and the left hand of a king was all about position and authority. There is some nuance from culture to culture, but that was the gist. In the Old Testament, we see this language used, and the place on the king's right is traditionally that of the highest honor and the highest authority. I have several texts. I'm not going to read any of them, but they're in your notes that you can look up on your own time. But when there's two people concerned you know, with a desire for authority or a position of authority, the one on the left is not necessarily in a place of inferiority. We see that in 2 Kings 22, 9, uh, 19 and Nehemiah 8, 4. There you've got authority and then it says that one on the right and one on the left and it's not to, there's no higher or lower rank being pointed to in those two texts. Among the Persians, the one on the left hand of the king was esteemed as the most honorable, but the right hand was still in exalted position. So you see the same, it's a little nuance from culture to culture, but the same basic idea. The Jewish historian Josephus represents Saul at supper with Jonathan, his son, on the right hand as the heir apparent to the throne, and Abner, the captain of his army, on his left hand. And in the Sanhedrin, the vice president sat on the right hand of the president, and the referee, who was the officer next in rank, sat on the left. So it's kind of like uh, president, vice president, speaker of the house in the line of authority. No matter where you look, both history and immediate context of this passage demands that we understand the, the test in this way. People who run to Matthew 25 where those on Jesus' right are welcomed into the kingdom and those on the left are cast into fiery hell are trying to make a connection where one doesn't exist. I've heard people handle the text that way. See, they didn't know what they were asking. They were asking for one of them to get to go to heaven and the other go to hell. That's not what this is saying. It's not what's going on here. Uh, some even connect it to the, you know, that Jesus was hung between two malefactors or robbers, one on the left and one on the right. 
So you're asking to be crucified alongside Jesus. No, that's, that's not what's going on either. It's simply a request for authority and position in the kingdom. That's what they were asking for, and that's how Jesus took the question. What, if anything, is wrong with this request? Well, it's certain that they were wrong because we'll see them gently corrected two sermons from now in verses 24 through 27 when the ten became indignant with the two brothers and then Jesus tells how rulers in the kingdom should be where he says, look at verse 25, you know that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them but it's not that way among you and whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So what is wrong with it? Well, first of all, there is a betrayal of Peter that I want to take note of. That's certainly an aspect of this text. Peter, James, and John were among the earliest of Jesus' disciples who had been with him the longest. They're regularly referred to in any commentary you read as Jesus' inner circle, and for good reason, aren't they? These three men were present with Jesus during special events, being eyewitnesses of Jesus' transfiguration in uh, chapter 17. Witnesses of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, we saw earlier in, I believe it was chapter 8, and accompanying him when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's to come in in chapter 26. They witnessed Jesus' greatest moments of glory and his darkest trials where the other nine weren't there. These three had a prominent position among the disciples. But Peter was clearly the spokesman of the group, and and Peter was clearly the leader, wasn't he? Jesus explicitly said that Peter was uh, the foremost amongst the disciples. After Peter's great confession, when when Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that thou art Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I build my church. So he was a prominent figure of the foundation of the apostles. He was foremost among the apostles. We've not seen anywhere in Matthew where James and John receive any individual attention. This bid for leadership is therefore a direct challenge to Peter's leading position. If James and John are at Peter's right and left, not Peter's, if James and John are at Jesus' right and left hand, then where is Peter? It seems as if James and John see chapter 1930 and 2016, those bookends of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last, as a rebuke of Peter's leading role in the kingdom of heaven. And they're taking this opportunity to make the case that Jesus should keep it in the family. Adding to the likelihood, to that likelihood is the fact that right after Jesus said the last shall be first and the first shall be last, Jesus again told of his coming suffering and death. Remember what happened the first time Jesus told that his suffering and death was coming? What happened? It was Peter that took him aside and rebuked him and said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on the interests of God, but on the interests of man. James and John alone were there on the mount, at the mountain of transfiguration when Peter foolishly suggested that three tabernacles be built, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And God the Father himself thundered a rebuke from heaven saying, This one guy, this one, is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. 
Had Peter not been the one that took his eyes off Jesus and sank into the sea, calling out for Jesus to save him, and didn't Jesus rebuke him, saying, You have little faith, why did you doubt? A part of them is likely, likely rejoiced in his failures. That's what selfish ambition will do for you. When someone's higher than you and then they fall and you see it as an opportunity that you might be able to be elevated just a little bit, that is demonic. If that's in your heart, I, oh, somebody fell, that's an opportunity for me, that's demonic. That is wicked. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. Far be it from us as Christians. So he has this... Betrayal of Peter is part of it, but also just the inherent selfish ambition of the whole thing. We should all be willing to accept a position of authority and responsibility in love and service to others. If that's what helps other people most, then we should be willing to fill that position in that role. I've often prayed that, the, that God brings around, uh, someone around that is such a powerful, uh, godly man that the best thing for me to do is sit down so we can listen to that guy instead of me. Because it ain't about our little ministries or us getting our little positions of authority. We do it if it serves. And we wait on it and see if God puts us where they, He wants us, not what we're grasping after or aspiring toward. But there's a huge chasm between that willingness and a grasping after such position for the sake of personal comfort, ease, and prominence. Like the scribes and Pharisees who loved the places of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, James and John longed for prestige and preeminence and to be exalted over the other apostles. Like the self-seeking Diotrephes in John and 3 John verse 9, they loved to be first. But that's not the way to greatness in the kingdom of God. James and John were not noted for their shyness. Jesus had nicknamed them what? The sons of thunder. And the moniker was a perfect fit for better and for worse. This request was not only bold, but brash. Jesus had promised them, Truly I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you'll also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But that wasn't good enough. They wanted to make sure they got the top two seats. James and John were wrong. But in this we learn a great lesson. Guys, take this lesson to heart. When you're around other Christians, sometimes they're going to be and do things that are wrong. And true faith and real error can be mixed in the heart of the best Christians. We're not a finished product. We're not there yet. And sometimes we can stumble. We can have blind spots. Can a high view of Jesus coexist with a, higher, with a, with a high view of self to go along with it? Sometimes, yes. Can great faith and great ignorance be wed together in one brain? Uh-huh. Yes, again. Thus we ought to be to persistently pray for purity and we ought to gently seek to purify one another. That's Sean, Douglas Sean O'Donnell. Brothers and sisters, check yourself. Do you find yourself grasping for positions of prominence? Do you want the high seat? Listen to Luke 8, Luke 14, 8 through 11. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. 
For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. Go there and be happy in the low seat. So that the one who has invited you comes, he might say, Friend, move up higher. Take the low seat and be what you're supposed to be. And God, when He sees you are what you're supposed to be, He'll elevate you to the seat you're supposed to be at. That's the point of this this parable, of this direction. Then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I've quoted meatloafs. I would do anything for love. Now let's glean some wisdom from the hilarious Steve Martin. He might be a wild and crazy guy, but all truth is God's truth. And he said something, I I listened to him say something this week that was really wise. He was asked the key to making it in Hollywood. And he said, they asked me that, but they don't like my answer because they're wanting me to tell them what agent to get. They're wanting me to tell them what cocktail parties to go to and who to rub shoulders with and what connections to make. But the real answer is be so good that they can't ignore you. Don't focus on getting the place. Focus on being so good you can't be ignored and the place will come to you. Why won't you let me lead? Show up and contribute well. Why, won't you, why can't I preach? Teach by your faithful attendance, by your supportive, supportive and positive attitudes, and by taking initiative and service. Serve where you are well. Teach by what you do where you are well. Find needs and feel needs. Just concentrate on doing good. That's all. Be the man that you should be. And I'll guarantee you your efforts will be noticed and your influence will be increased. When a man withdraws because he's not recognized or elevated enough, it lets me know for certain the last thing this man needs is to be recognized or elevated. That's the last thing they need. A platform is the perfect thing to fall off of. Such a man's immaturity has vanquished him to the last in the line. And far be it from me to put that guy out front and allow him to condemn himself because I know teachers endure a stricter judgment. I love you too much to do that to you and I love the flock too much to force them to be led by a man who can't even govern his own spirit. The man who is exalted is the one who humbles himself and the one who is brought low is the one who ends up exalted. So show up. Serve with no platform. Contribute with no expectation of a position. And the platforms, which you won't even care about when you've matured, they'll find you. But guys, that's not just true in the church, in positions in the church. It's not just true there. It's also true in our influence in the world. When we show up at everything we go, everywhere we go 15 minutes late, with disheveled hair and disorderly kids who look like that they should be in a production of Oliver Twist or Annie. And we're out of shape, slavish looking, morbidly obese, with halitosis. We can't really expect to influence the world very much. We, we get it so wrong. 
We want the glory of winning the world to Christ by evangelistic methods when our lives are not marked by simple Christian virtue. Be what you're supposed to be. Sure, evangelize while you're getting there, but where you're a train wreck of a person, be what you're supposed to be or you're not going to be hurt anyway. We can influence the world. Whatever you are, be a good one of it. You see a man that's excellent in his work? The Bible tells us he'll stand before kings and not mere men. Be good at being a man. Image God rightly. Be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And the culture will be transformed as a byproduct of your transformation. We want the shortcuts. I want to change the world. I want to, uh, you know, sit in here and while I'm eating Doritos and contact my local politician and tell him that I want these laws passed that reflect the, the you know, the kingdom of God. Guys, you're doing that while you don't even reflect the kingdom of God in your own life. It doesn't work that way. You've got to be a driver of culture by being a godly person and a productive person where you are. And then the positions and the prestige and the, the transformation, the success will follow that. We can't get it out of order. Slow down and concentrate on being the man you're supposed to be. Be so good, in the words of Steve Martin, that they can't ignore you. Does this strike you as unbiblical? Well, Peter didn't think so. 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, be so good they can't ignore you. And even when they try to put you down and say that you're not really all that, they don't have a leg to stand on because you actually really are a godly person. And it puts to silence the ignorance of godless men. Authority flows to those who take responsibility. So take responsibility. Repent and be exemplary men and women. And when people are forced to take notice, tell them, yes, by God's grace, I now lead an exemplary life by human standards. But all that list of that shall not inherit the kingdom of God, all those bad things, you ought to see what I was, what Jesus saved me from. And not only that, if I were judged now in my current state according to the standard of God's perfect holiness, I'd still be damned. Yes, I'm exemplary by human standards, but I've got a long way to go. Jesus is still the only way that you can be saved. Let me tell you about Him. They'll take you way more seriously when you've got a life in order than when you're a complete train wreck. We've well, got to be sanctified if we ever want to give the message to people and be taken seriously, we will actually lead to them being justified. Let me tell you about how he bought my forgiveness and changed and is changing my life. Weak men want to get positions so that they can exert influence. Strong men exert godly influence from where they are and it, I mean, and it leads to positions. See how it changes? Just exert godly influence. Is that not exactly what Jesus did? Turn one more turn one place. Philippians two, three through eleven. The Apostle Paul instructs us Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But in lowliness of mind, 
regard one another as more important than yourselves. Like Jesus, He came not to be served. But to, I mean, yeah, not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many, didn't He? Not for, he didn't want the position. He, did the, he imaged God who was the perfect embodiment of love and it led to what we're going to read here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out merely for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So to the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you failed? Well, Jesus never did. Jesus did this perfectly, and that's the only reason we have any hope. He died on that cross to pay for where we have been selfishly ambitious. For all the failures that we are, everything, everything, the reasons that we don't exert the influence we should, Jesus died to forgive us for that, but also to change us so that we could conquer those sinful patterns and be sanctified and conformed to His image so that we then could go out and be like He is and continue His ministry of transforming the world. It's both and. We've got the priestly ministry only that we emphasize and we've left out the kingly aspect and the prophetic aspect of being what we should be, of exerting influence in the world and teaching the world to observe all things that Christ Jesus has commanded. Trust in Jesus, yes. But be what you're supposed to be. Image Him. Take dominion of the world around you and teach the nations to trust in Jesus and to do the same. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for where it rebukes us, and we thank you for where it corrects us. Lord, we feel the guilt, we feel the sting that we know we judged according to your standards. We've been James and John. We've been like the uh, wife of Zebedee. We've, we've messed it up, Lord. But that you, you loved perfectly and gave your right life as a ransom for us. That you took the low seat and died on a cross, the most torturous death the most agonizing death, the most embarrassing and loathsome death that could have been imagined, Lord, that you became a curse for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Lord, help us, Lord, to cleave to you for our forgiveness and to trust in you to be transformed and to lead to transformation of the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.